Why don't you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10? It's on page 1489, if you've got one of the brown Bibles from the table. Page 1489, and it's Mark's Gospel chapter 10. All right, I'm going to read to you from Mark 10 verse 17. And what is one of the more um, striking and surprising and intensely relevant stories in the Gospels, the story of this young man who came to Jesus with a question. It says, as he, this is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And as he said to him, teacher, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell All that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. (coughs) This guy comes up to Jesus with the most important question that anyone could ever ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Which in Jesus' understanding is synonymous with the question, what must I do to be your disciple? Because Jesus made it very clear that the only way to life is to be his disciple, to be his follower. But that's not what the man asks. He asks, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, when you think about the context we're in, the city we're in, the mindset of most people, what are the kind of ways that people uh, would answer that question? At one end of the the spectrum, there are people who would think that um, there is no life after death. There is no such thing as eternal life, that it's all just a kind of a myth and pie in the sky. 
And in which case, if that's the case, if all that there is to life is what you do here and now, this materialistic age, then the, the answer is, well, you can do nothing to inherit eternal life, and you better just make the most of the life that you're in right now, which I think is a good portion of our city lives that way, right? At the other end of the spectrum, as we've been so vividly reminded, you have those who believe in bizarre and often even cruel ways to inherit eternal life. People who will do seemingly fanatical things in the name of some God for the sake of inheriting eternal life. And so the answer to that question fuels this insanity, this lunacy. And I think the more we see of that, often the more people react in the opposite direction. Say, well, I want nothing to do with anything to do with faith, religion, if it creates that kind of insanity and that lunacy. So we have these kind of vastly different ways of thinking. The age of secularism, the age of intense fanatical religion, and then somewhere in the middle, the kind of the mushy middle, you have a good portion of people who would believe that there is a kind of a life after death. Certainly we wish there was. And that to have it, to get there, to inherit it, then what's needed is that you be moral, that you be good, that you be good people, that you somehow, you know, you're decent, you're upright, you're a nice person. And so I want us to wrestle with this question, the question that the man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want to show you three negatives and then one answer, one positive, the thing that Jesus points to. Three ways that he shows us a wrong, and then just one that is the right way. And I hope that you'll be challenged and provoked. The first, then, of the wrong ways is this, that Jesus does not care about your earthly advantages. What do I mean? This guy who comes up to Jesus, what's he like? Uh, you learn a little bit about him from this passage, that he's rich. If you turn to the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, who all tell the same story. One of them also tells us that he's young. He's in his youth. He's probably, you know, he's probably late teens, early 20s. And another one, the Gospels tells us that he is a ruler, that he is a guy with authority, that somehow people listen to him and, and pay attention to what he says because he has some kind of natural standing in, in, in the community or in, in the society. So this is why you can see on your page here, it's titled The Rich Young Ruler. This guy is a little bit special in his community. Now, think about this. Jesus is a a kind of a revolutionary leader, right? So he's starting a new movement with the intent to change the world. And if you're going to go about starting a new thing, you know, we, we started this church three years ago, and you think, well, what are the kinds of people you want to bring along with you on the journey if you want to have a bigger and increasing impact along the way. And I would have thought that the things that are true of this man are the kind of things that you'd want. You want somebody with a bit of cash in the pocket because it helps you. You know, Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling, they're eating hand to mouth. If you've got a guy who's with you who can foot the bill, then you guys are not going to go hungry uh, for days as you travel from town to town. You're going to be well-fed. You're going to be nicely clothed. So you want somebody who's rich. You want, ideally, people who are young. Because youth can, is, is moldable, right? When someone's young, you know, Jesus' whole strategy for impacting the world was to take a bunch of guys, impart his teaching to them, and then let them loose after he had ascended to heaven. 
So ideally, the younger they are, the better, because they have a longer chance to, to make an impact in the world. So you want someone who's rich, you want someone who's young, and you would ideally want people who have a kind of a natural gravitas and authority, because they have more impact on the community. So imagine, uh, on any given Sunday, or let's say today, if um, Justin Bieber were to walk in through the door, right? <laughs> he's rich, he's young, and in one sense, he's a ruler. He's a cultural ruler. A lot of people listen to what people like Bieber have to say. And if after we're going to baptize uh, the guys, you know, Jamie comes up out of the pool and then Bieber says, I want to get baptized. And I think he's had some interest in faith more recently. I don't really know much about him or his story, so sorry. <laughs> um, but let's say he wants to get baptized and this guy comes and he comes and tells his testimony and we dunk him in the pool and we all celebrate. What is going to happen to our church? What do you think? <laughs> Hordes of teenage girls the next Sunday? Probably. Increased influence, increased following, no doubt about it. And, you know, you could pick any example. People, you know, if you get your rich young rulers into the church, then immediately your impact increases. So here's Jesus, and he, he has this guy come up to him and says, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? And what would you be tempted to do if you were Jesus in that moment? Wouldn't you want to appeal to him, charm him, win him? Bring him along with you on your journey and ideally get him on your side. So interesting about Jesus. He is utterly impartial to the things that we think make us special. So impartial to these things. You look at his disciples, there was not a Bieber among them. They were a mishmash of odds and ends. Most rabbis who had disciples, their disciples looked pretty slick. They probably all wore similar garments and they were the smartest kids around. Jesus' disciples were like ruffians and these gruff bearded men. That's why I like them. You know. <laughs> he even seems to have a preference often for the disadvantaged. Those with nothing as opposed to wealth. Those who are often old. You see him interacting with the elderly and those who have no position in society, often the uneducated. These are the people Jesus most appeals to. And I say this because I think it's very important for us to understand that Jesus is impartial to your earthly advantages. Being a decent, moral person and a Brit who's well-educated and has got a decent career, of course none of that really matters, does it? Let's, let's be realistic about this. This is Jesus who can stand before Pilate and Herod on the day that he's being tried and accused and he can keep his mouth shut because he has nothing to say to these men. He has no interest in their earthly authority and their earthly wealth and their earthly power. He's impartial. Why? Jesus doesn't need you. He doesn't need your gifts. He doesn't need your abilities. You don't make his church better in that sense. We so foolishly bring ourselves and think we're a little bit special sometimes. Jesus has no interest in these things. That's the first negative, and it's so clear in the way he handles this man. He doesn't pander to him. He's impartial. Here's a second thing, the second negative. Jesus is not impressed by lip service and by flattery. Now, look how the man speaks to him. He addresses him and says, he actually runs up to him. He runs up to him. He's eager, right? 
and he kneels down on the floor. I've very rarely seen this kind of eagerness and enthusiasm in a person. Very rarely. And he addresses him with these words, good teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's very rare to see that kind of honor and desire in a person. But Jesus so interestingly immediately calls him out on on what he sees because he, he asks him the question, why do you call me good? Why does Jesus do that? It's not because Jesus is saying I'm not a good person. It's not because Jesus is denying the truth about him that he's the son of God and he's the embodiment of perfection. He wasn't doing that. What he's rather trying to do is expose in the man's mind, in the man's heart, that he didn't even understand the words that he was saying. He didn't understand, on the one hand, the absolute goodness and holiness of God, how different God is from us, how perfect and pure, how utterly radiant, that he is a consuming fire, the Bible says. That's what the word good means. Not our watered-down version of the word good. And the flip side to that, of course, is that he didn't understand that you can't throw that word around cheaply because you and I are not good in that sense. He didn't understand what he was talking about and he didn't understand the words he was using. It's like if I'm to go, you know, just down the road, down that way, we've got the, the Tate Modern. And I've been in there, I think, once or twice. I remember on one occasion, I went in there, and there was a canvas that was painted blue. And uh, it was this particular tone of blue. And people were gushing about this, this work of art. And I could have stood there and been like, wow, so profound. It speaks to me on so many levels. And really, I'm thinking, what on earth is this blue canvas? I, you know, is this what you do to earn a living? As a, you know, you go there and there's a nappy on a stick. And you can, you can, you can either honor it and be like, wow, and you can gush with words about how profound and meaningful this is. Or you taste a wonderful glass of wine and you swill it around and smell it and say, what a wonderful bouquet. When I, what's a bouquet? I, I, I actually have no idea what a bouquet is. What does that even mean? Now, we, we do this all the time. We use words so cheaply. And really, they... We don't mean what we say, and they have no meaning. They don't resonate with our hearts. And here this man, he runs up, he kneels, he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? And what's he doing? He wants the man to see how utterly cheapened his words were, that he didn't understand what he was saying. There's a terrifying parable in, later in one of the Gospels when Jesus says, On the final day, people will come to him and say the word Lord, Lord, which is the ultimate word of reverence. And then they'll say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we feed people in your name? And Jesus will say the most terrifying words in the whole of the Bible. He will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. They are terrifying words because these people think they know Jesus. They're calling him Lord and they're saying, we carried your name and we acted on your name. And he says, I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. 
There's another time in the Gospels when Jesus is speaking to the Israelites and he quotes from Isaiah, the book we began the service with, and he says, a verse that says, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now that's what's going on in this young man's heart. He comes up to Jesus, he runs, he kneels. Good teacher. So much honor in that, so much respect. But also so little understanding, so little real knowledge of God. And I think that is, the, that is the greatest sickness when I look around at our nation. There's quite a lot of church-going folk. So much church-going folk, but it actually is not that different from... You remember that episode of Mr. Bean when he goes to church, that country chapel or country, uh, country church? And as the organ strikes up with all creatures of our God and King... He stands off because he's got no idea what the words are. And as soon as the, the refrain comes in, hallelujah, hallelujah. And actually, although he's, he's a mockery and he's ridiculous, actually a lot of people in church are exactly like that. You may actually know a little bit more because the words are on the screen. You follow along or you read the passage you, mm, during the sermon. And Jesus says, what do you mean? What are these words that you're saying? Jesus is not impressed by lip service and empty flattery. And, you know, so many people, I have friends, I have friends who we talk about faith with on a regular basis, and one of them in particular, you know, when we, we talk about, there's a group of us who meet up in a different faith from atheists, Jews, and Christian, and me, my wife and I are Christians, and Catholic, and there's this, you know, this one guy, and he, I, we talk about the differences between our faiths, and he says, well, as a Christian, and I look at him and think, bro, when was the last time you, you darkened the door of a church? And isn't that so much at the heart of the problem in Britain today? That so many people think that faith is this. It's the shell of doing the right thing and of going to church and playing lip service to Jesus and owning the name of Christ and not realizing what a costly thing it is to own the name of Christ, to call yourself a Christian. Jesus is not impressed by earthly advantages. He is not impressed by flattery and lip service. And here's the third negative, friends. Jesus is not even convinced by your obedience and by your good life. Friend, if you were to stand next to this young man, I guarantee you would pale in comparison to his piety and devotion. This guy is devout. He, you see it, first of all, in his eagerness that he's searching for life. He runs up. He kneels before Jesus. He asks him the question. You see it, secondly, in the devotion that he's had since childhood. <clears throat> when Jesus says, no, he says to him, uh, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, and so on. His answer is, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. In other words, he's had a consistent life. From childhood, right the way through to, to speaking to Jesus on that day, that he's not wandered away. I've met lots of people growing up in church who've wandered away and, and, and turned their back on faith, even if just for a season. This guy is not that guy. He's never wanted to wander away. He's found that there's been meaning in his faith, that he's wanted to obey God. And he's kept the commandments. 
I mean, the, the list that Jesus re- recites to him, most of them are from the Ten Commandments. These are the big ones. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery and so on. And he says, all these, all of these I've kept from my youth. I'm just trying to help you understand. This guy is, if you saw him, you would admire him. There's no question. You would admire his character. You would admire his uprightness. You'd admire his integrity. I think he's what we would call a good man. And Jesus says to him, verse 21, looking at him, loved him, he said to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Now what is Jesus doing? Why is he prodding this man in a sore point? Because I think he wants us to understand just how totally defiling sin is. Sin is not like when you pull the moldy yogurt out of the fridge and scrape the mold off the top and then eat the rest. Do you ever do that? I do that, I don't mind. The yogurt's fine. Or you take the bread out of the bread bin and the end bit's a bit, got a bit of blue on it. You just throw that one away and put the rest in the toaster. It's absolutely fine. We often think that sin's like that. You know, the substance of my life is good and there's this bit of rubbish on the side and, you know, we can deal with that. We'll deal with that at some point. We'll just cut that off. It's all going to be fine. What you don't understand is that sin is something which, it doesn't make you completely evil, but it taints everything about you. So when he says one thing you lack, what he means is at the very root of your heart, there is a sickness of called sin, which infects and taints and defiles everything about you. So your self-perception is wrong, dear friend. That's what he's saying. You think you've kept the commandments. He says, one thing you lack, let me reveal to you what your problem is. Why is Jesus so harsh? Because the deepest problem of the human heart, the thing which God finds most offensive, is our pride and our self-righteousness. That we think that we can stand before a holy God and pretend that we are good. And Jesus wants to unravel that misunderstanding in his heart. It's the misunderstanding that lies at the root of all religious devotion that doesn't understand what Jesus did for us, what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's why, after he says to him, you lack one thing, sell all you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. And he leaves disheartened. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom. And he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He's obviously using an absurd picture to make an emphatic point. But then he says it even more clearly when they ask, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. That's the bottom line for Jesus. It is utterly impossible. 
Because Jesus always wants to crush whatever hope you had in your good record when you come to him. He wants to crush it. He has to crush it. He has to destroy it. He has to totally disillusion you of your confusion and lack of self-knowledge. You ask, well, maybe you're not in that place. Maybe your problem isn't that you're selfish in, this, in the way this guy was. Or, you know, how does this apply to us? Certainly wealth is his idol. Here's our problem. I think we look at things like what happened last night and we think that's evil and I'm nowhere near that. We look at this, the insanity and the cruelty of, of murdering people in cold blood. People who have done you no wrong and we say that is what evil is. That's the madness that's infected our world. If we could get rid of that, the world would be a decent place. And I ask you, what's more dangerous? Is it that? What about the madness of a city that's caught up in the obsessive pursuit of materialistic gain? What about that madness? What about a world which is not... Sure, we're jolted at times by things that happened last night, but most of the time we are lulled to sleep by the naturalism, the the godless mentality of our age that says that the only things worth living for are the pleasures that you can get in the here and now. And so most of our city is without an appetite for God because He does not enter into the picture because life is all about pursuing things, material things. Certainly, that's a problem. Do you think of bad people in the world as just the lunatics? Or can you begin to see how maybe a life that's lived for anything less than God is a bad life? Jesus basically exposes this man's idolatry. That's what he does. For this man, he worshipped money more than he worshipped God. That was the bottom line for him. Yes, he wanted to obey God, but ultimately he did not want to obey God if it hurt him in the here and now. And friend, it may not be that for you the problem is money. I think... Seven times out of ten in a city like ours, it probably is. But there are all kinds of other idols that people cherish in their hearts as being the reason why you cannot surrender your life to the living God. What are they? Autonomy would be one of them. The desire that you be the king of your own life and the ruler of your own heart. Autonomy. An unwillingness to surrender the basic right to rule yourself. That's what Jesus is inviting this man to do, and he doesn't want to do that. For many others, it's pleasure-seeking in hedonism. Sometimes it's attached with wealth, but often not. It can be around sex. It can be around other kinds of pleasurable pursuits. And people trip up on these things because they know that to follow Jesus sincerely is to give up their right to these things. 
Is that you? Have you, have you come up against one thing? You say, I'd like to follow Jesus. I'd like to be a Christian. I'd like to be someone who, is, who has faith in God. But really, there's just this thing in my life that I cannot let go of. For many others, it is the ambitions of living a life that fulfills your dreams, your hopes, your, your desires. And the point is this, that in such a situation, you're not the loaf with the bluebird at the end. Jesus wants you to understand that that is the most important thing about you when you stand in his presence. Your unwillingness to surrender that. And so we come back to the question, what does Jesus want from this man? What does he want from us? And friends, it really comes down to one very simple answer. It's that you trust him completely. This is why we love the word faith. Do you know what the word faith means? The word faith is not how the atheists use it, which is make-believe in something that's invisible. The word faith is a relational word. It means I put my trust in you. I, I, I rest my confidence in you. In fact, so much so I want to stand on this idea, this truth, and put my whole... Let all of my existence and, and future benefit be contingent on whether this thing is true or not. That's what faith means. And that's what Jesus calls for from this man. And I want to break that down to you into a negative and a positive. Negatively, it means this. That to trust Jesus completely always means a death. A death to some other source of your trust and confidence in life. We're about to enter into election. When you cast your ballot, you're expressing faith in one candidate and you're dying to the others. You're saying, I reject the rest. Yesterday I was conducting a marriage ceremony for Chris and Joe, who will be back, I'm sure, soon. Um, newlyweds from our church. And uh, you know, when, you, when you say those vows at the altar, as it were, at the front of the, the room, although there was no altar, it was not a church, we were in a random hall somewhere. But anyway, when you say those vows... You are, in a sense, completely trusting the other person and you are denying yourself however many billion other options there are in, in the world. Faith always means a death to something, a rejection of something else. And the difference with Jesus, when he calls for people to express faith in him and trust in him, is that his call is absolute. Which I mean... He brooks no rivals. Any rival to Jesus is by definition an idol. Because it is a competitor with the living God. It is by definition to worship an idol if there's something in your life which stops you from trusting Jesus in complete sincerity and truth. Nobody becomes a Christian without dying in some way. And that's what this man is invited to do. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He says, die to your wealth. It's interesting that Jesus never says this to anyone else in the Gospels. So I don't think we're meant to take it as a blanket command that to become a Christian is to give away everything that you own. I don't believe that at all. But he says it to this man because for this man, 
That was the thing he could not let go of. And friend, if you are not a Christian, there is that thing in your life. I don't know what it is, but there is that thing. To trust Jesus is always to die to something. But to put it positively, to trust Jesus is to recognize that he loves you more and reward you and bless you more than whatever it is that you were formerly trusting in. It sounds like Jesus is being a bit mean to this guy, doesn't it? Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. What? I'm meant to live hand to mouth? Don't I have a right to some comforts in life? It sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? But listen to how he says it. He says, and you will have treasure in heaven. Well, what good to me is heaven right now? And we can listen to Jesus and think, Jesus, your command is too difficult. It's impossible. You said it's impossible. It's too hard. It's too steep. It's too difficult. There are things I cannot let go of. And you're mean to even ask. Friend, I want you to understand just how much love Jesus has, even as he talks to this man. And certainly also as he talks to you. I love how it's put so simply. And Jesus, after the question, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus is not being mean to him. He's not being harsh. He's not being unkind. He's not being rough with him. There's a gentleness perhaps even a soothing invitation in the way he speaks to this guy. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come, follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. You cannot understand what it means to have faith until you grasp that Jesus' invitation always comes from a place of deep love and compassion for you. You think, well, what kind of love is that 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 results in self-denial and even a certain degree of suffering in this life. And you've got to understand it's the love that says, I can give you something better if only you'll trust me. I can give you something far superior if only you'll hand your life over to me completely. Every time you run back to that same sin that you've been struggling with, you're denying that basic fact. You're denying that Jesus offers you something better. It reminded me of these words that um, C.S. Lewis penned in his amazing essay, The Weight of Glory, when he said, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and isn't that what he says to him here? You'll have treasure in heaven. It's one of those unblushing promises of reward. The, the Gospels are never embarrassed about saying the offer that Jesus makes of rewards for those who follow him. He says, if we consider those, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord, Jesus, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It wasn't that this young man had too much raging desire burning through his veins that made him unable to surrender his wealth. It's that his desire was too weak. What does he mean by that? He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and we can add here, and money, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum. That's what the young man chose by keeping his wealth. Mud pies in a slum. Because he cannot imagine. He doesn't have a powerful enough imagination 
to understand what's meant by the offer of a holiday at, a, at the sea, treasures in heaven. Friend, the last thing I just want to ask is, how, how can you trust Jesus like this? And really the answer is you cannot. You cannot unless God moves in your heart. That's why Jesus says, when the disciples ask, who can be saved? You know, who naturally would ever make that call to deny themselves completely so that they can have you, Lord Jesus? And Jesus says, with man it's impossible. In other words, there's no way you can possibly move your heart enough to think that Jesus is, is the way, the truth, and the life and to allow him to overshadow and overall and even obliterate every other uh, false desire in your heart. You can't do it. But he says, but not with God. It's impossible with man, but not with God. And I want to underline that for you because I want you to understand that whenever a person becomes a Christian, we're going to hear stories of people who've been telling, who'll tell us their testimony before we dunk them in the pool. We're hearing them speak a miracle, actually. And it's a miracle that we should be in awe of. That for these four people to have trusted God entirely was a work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. It had to be God. Because in every earthly sense, it is impossible to follow him. What would it look like if God was beginning to move in your heart in this way? It would look like this. First of all, you'd begin to see that he loves you. We never see it more clearly, friends, than when we see Jesus hanging on the cross for us. Because that was when he demonstrated in the most vivid and practical way that he loved the world. First, you'll begin to perceive that he loves you, that he died for you. Secondly, you'll realize that your life without him actually is quite empty and futile. That like the young man, as much as you hoard your treasures and your idols, there's an emptiness to it and it doesn't satisfy you. And it, they don't love you back. They're empty. They don't love you back. They're cruel and cold idols. And you keep paying your dues to worship them and you get something, but then they quickly disappear through your fingers. The pleasures, the joys, the fulfillment that you thought you were going to get through them. You start to realize, Jesus loves me, but all this is quite futile. I've been going around in circles doing the same things for years. And there's just so much futility to it. Thirdly, you give up, you give in. And you say, I'm going to die. I'm going to die to my efforts. I'm going to die to my attempt to save myself. I'm not going to be like the young man who goes up to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're going to recognize that there's absolutely nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. And then fourthly, you're going to start to follow. You will trust your life to Jesus, even imperfectly. And of course, always with a mixture in your heart. You can never do this with total, perfect sincerity and commitment. But you will say, basically, Lord, I want to follow you. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, I want to obey you. And I want to put my trust in you, Lord Jesus, that your death for me on the cross was sufficient, that you saved me from my sins, and I can live with you for eternity. Friend, you're going to hear some stories uh, from people who've, who've expressed that at some point in their lives. All of them uh, were, were saved some time ago and have come to a point of realizing, okay, the ne- I need to get baptized now because Jesus is Lord. <laughs> and we need to celebrate this because it's a wonderful, wonderful thing when someone expresses obedience in this way. 
But maybe you'll be provoked. Maybe you'll think, yes, this life is the right life to live for Jesus. And if that's you, if you're provoked in any way, we would love to help you. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to answer whatever questions you may have. And you mustn't feel like we're, we're going to be un, unapproachable or unkind. Please do come and speak to me afterwards or drop a note on one of those welcome cards in the box that's on the table over there and just say, I'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. And we will absolutely follow up and talk to you about it.